are listening to Cover Stories, a deep dive into the stories behind iconic album art with Adam Charlie O. Steel Wheels has a cover that represents a corporate reunion for the Rolling Stones. It was released 25 August 1989. Previous Stones album covers featured photographs, paintings, lenticulars, die cuts, negatives, drawings, collages, and the like. Steel Wheels marked the first time a digital image was used for an album cover. The role of album cover art was changing. Artists were not just designing album covers. They were designing art for marketing, merchandise, and the stage. Their art had to sell the album concept and look great on t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, posters, banners, and all manner of memorabilia. It also had to resonate with the tour staging. Album art could no longer be separated from the tour. It had become a key visual concept for the world's global enterprise bands. The Rolling Stones Incorporated Reunion could have been the title for this album and tour. Keith Richards said, The Stones are bigger than any of us when it comes down to the nitty-gritty. And they were. This is also when the Stones became a commercial force to deal with by launching their largest worldwide tour ever on the biggest stage ever constructed. The Stones changed the concert business for the biggest acts in the world. They sold their entire tour, including concerts, merchandising, TV and film rights to Michael Cole of Toronto's Concert Productions International for about $70 million. Cole was backed by Budweiser money. Most tickets sold for $28.50. Through it all ran the Steel Wheels album art. This is the story of that art. This art was created not just for the album art, but for merchandise and the tour as well. Steel Wheels served as a therapeutic exorcism for Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, whose relationship had been deteriorating for years. It offered proof the wounds had healed and the wheels in this cart were not coming off. They were wheels of steel. It was Bill Wyman's final full-length studio album with the Stones, and it was the first album that did not feature the sixth Rolling Stone, Ian Stewart. Chuck Lavelle, keyboardist for the Rolling Stones, called Steel Wheels kind of the rebirth of the Rolling Stones. He said, They had not scored in seven years. I think it was do or die. Either they were going to go out here or were going to make it work. When Steel Wheels came around, I think everybody realized the whole was greater than the sum of its parts. Steel Wheels was the first Stones album to be digitally recorded. It was the first time Stone's merchandise was available in stores like Macy's. It was the beginning of the superstage era of touring. No one had ever seen anything like Steel Wheels before. The tour introduced the biggest stage ever used for the biggest show the Stones had ever done. This also marked the beginning of pre-show meet and greets. Richard says, I can't remember who came up with the title, but it was a working title for a song that's now called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Between a Rock and a Hard Place sums up the situation Jagger and Richards must have found themselves in. Neither was as good alone as they were together. We're in the same boat on the same sea, 
and were sailing south on the same breeze. Harmony was restored. The stones were as tough as steel, and here they were coming round again. Why steel wheels? They wanted something tough like the band itself. It's an image that evokes the new momentum of the band, which was getting itself moving again with the release of this new record. Richard said, Then there's the sound of the words, which is always important to the Stones. The title was intricately tied to the album's theme, which may be best reflected in the touring stage. In an ABC News interview, Charlie Watts said that until now, touring stage sets were usually painted stages, and Jagger added, or paper mache. Watts described the steel wheel set as a piece of industrial waste, and Jagger called it a decaying industrial city, and said it was broken down but still functioning, perhaps like a set of steel wheels. John Warwicker, art designer for the Steel Wheels album, said the Steel Wheels title had been chosen before he was invited to join the project. He said, In our first meeting, Mick asked me what I thought of it, and I responded that it made sense, with their idea of what was making the world go round. I suspect the title came first. Then architect Mark Fisher's initial graphics. Then the design as you know it. The title begat the cover art, which begat the stage. God and the Stones work in mysterious ways. Tours were once done to promote a new album. At the time of Steel Wheels, the music industry's economics were in flux, and albums were now necessary to promote a tour. Touring was necessary for survival. A supergroup could no longer tour behind a record like it did in the old days. Megatours were becoming the bread and butter of the Stones and other supergroups. Let's hit the pause button and chat a bit. So it's hard to imagine that the Stones train was ever close to going off the tracks. But it seems like the years leading up to Steel Wheels were as close as we get to that happening, right? Was there anything going on in particular that led into this? Well, well sure, sure. I mean, you go back to dirty work and the problems you know that they yeah. were having all through the 80s. It was, uh, I think the, the real nub of it all was uh, when the Stones signed their contract with CBS, Mick did a side deal for uh, his individual albums. Yeah. And that just, that that was just a trespass that Keith couldn't forgive. I mean, you know, so Mick's writing a song, he comes up with a song, who gets it? Is this for me or is this for yeah. the band? Yeah. And that was just, uh, you know, that was just too much for for Keith to swallow. So, you know, Keith's out with his band, Mick's out with his band. Yeah. And it looked for a while like, you know, uh, this is the way they're going the path that every other rock and roll band has gone in history. So, yeah. 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 He, he really, he gave Mick a pounding in the press surrounding that solo album, right? Yeah, yeah he did. Yeah, was yeah. Like, was he a he wasn't a fan. Babylon I don't think, he, I don't think he has a copy of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I doubt he's ever heard it. Um, but it feels like, you know, among other things, mixed emotions is a direct lyrical response to that. So I also tend to think the band is at their best when things are a little murky and mysterious and strained like this. You, this was as good as it had been in a while, mostly because, look, we have to bury the hatchet if we're going to be this mega rock band that we're still aspiring to be. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd buy off one, uh, you know, that, that some... Uh, um 
up, upset makes them better. I, I think, you know, when the stones are hitting it together, when Keith and Mick are getting on, that's good. You know, and, and it's better when it's the world against them. You know, that's, when they yeah, turn against true. each other, that's that's a different sort of thing. But, you know, if, if they've got the cops and the and the immigration and everybody else, you know, the, the tax people chasing them, then I think that's when the stones are at the best, when they kind of circle the wagons and, and you know, say, all we got is each other. And, okay, and yeah, they, that's a good point. I concur. Yeah. I concur. But it's it's interesting. At this late date, 2023, it's hard to imagine 1989 as being a modern anything. Yeah. But it really was. It was an integral time in modern history in a lot of different ways. So Steel Wheels is released. You know, it's the last gasp of the 80s. We just have a couple months before yeah. we're turning the page into 1990. Mm-hmm. But it feels like a turning of the page for the band as well. They really embrace technology like they'd never done before. Though always, you know, you've always said that uh, Jagger is, you know, the, was the, the church of what's next. Is yeah, yeah. He, right? He's a minister in the church of what's happening now. Yes, and yes, Whether yes. it's technology, music, fashion trends, whatever it is. He's, he's right there. Yeah, and he, he embraces that really well, I think, throughout his career. Yeah. And aside from the album art, which we're certainly getting into, this recording was digital, right, for the yeah, first Yeah, this was time. the first that wasn't really uh, released on vinyl. You know, that, <laughs> yeah. you know when, when it was initially released, it was all digital. Yeah, so that really speaks to the era, and it speaks to yeah. you, you, Mick embracing the dawn of a new, truly a new era, the digital Absolutely. the digital age. Yeah. Um, I also find it funny that they thought so much about merchandising. I shouldn't find it so surprising or funny because later we kind of turn into Rolling Stones Incorporated. You know, it's it's too big of an operation not to think about merchandising. But opening up your merchandising rights or selling off your rights when ultimately landing in a department store is something yeah. typically reserved <laughs> for the monoliths like Star Wars. You, know, you can go into Walmart and, and, and buy a, a Luke Skywalker shirt. So... It's the first time it became really clear that the Stones were uh, a planet-sized operation, for yeah. lack of a better word. Yeah, that's a great that's a great uh, analogy. Yeah, <laughs> and I know that you went to this tour, and it's mind-boggling to think that for thirty dollars you were allowed to glimpse what can only be described as described as the birth of the mega tour. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the world certainly changed after that, and, and I, I uh, you know. Looking back, $28.50 was the price for most of the tickets. Uh, you know, $28.50 won't buy you popcorn and a soda at a Stones concert. Not today. It won't cover yeah. parking at a Stones no, concert, no, you know? Won't. No, it won't. And yeah, and you're right. This was the beginning. This was uh, the bigger, the biggest of the of the big. Yeah. And it's it's a neat time. Up to that point in time. Well, sure. Should, yeah. We After that, I mean, yeah. the... Yeah, that, that unleashed the Kraken. It did. Bridges to Babylon, uh, you know, later on would have a word yeah. with which was the biggest tour set. But the title of this album, which we'll refer to, I'm sure, countless times, Steel Wheels, I think it's always intrigued me. It really lends itself to all kinds of interpretation. And... The press certainly got in on that, too, a bit. You know, a little bit, I think, was incorrect and unintentional or maybe direct digs at the band. But knowing the band had kind of always been in disarray, I like the idea of them doubling down on their confidence during an unstable time. Like, we don't know. This may go off the tracks, but guess what? We're made of steel. The wheels of this bus are made of steel. You know, know, we're going to keep into existence. Convincing yourself. So I like that it's equal parts yeah. vulnerable and egotistical, which I think is always 
been part of the crux of this band that I really love. Um, it's, it's funny, the first album that I thought of was an album by the Ramones, an, an all-time fave of mine. They, they did one when they were at their, you know, most disconnected called Too Tough to Die, uh, when in reality they probably would have skipped each other's funerals at the time, but uh, the wheels on this bus were too big to fail. So. Yeah, yeah. You know, I like the analogy that you use those because that's the, the way I've always described the Stones and why I like them so much because they were a tour, touring band, a live band. And what I loved about their live concerts was you, you always felt like the, the wheels could come off at any point. Yeah. You know, that this could just go just horribly wrong or horribly great. And, and usually it went horribly great. So. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Back to our story. Let's do it. Apropos of the tendency to link the image of steel wheels to the wheels of a train, the tour was announced July 11, 1989, in New York City's Grand Central Station, where the Stones arrived aboard an old caboose on track 42. The album cover logo was on the side of the train and on the stage, where the press awaited the Stones' arrival. They debuted their new single, Mixed Emotions, on a boombox. The press conference MC asked Jagger if the title of the album referred to hip-hop scratch DJ turntables or is it trains? Jagger did not seem to understand the question, and before he could answer, the terminal announcement boomed out, now boarding the Rolling Stones on track 22, all aboard, and they walked off without answering the question. That may have been our best shot at a definitive answer. Failing that, we have plenty of speculation. It has been suggested it is a double entendre title that referred both to locomotive power and to the wheelchairs of the aged and infirm. Others said Jagger had this album and tour pegged as emblematic of industrial age decline and the dawn of the digital age of megabytes, cyberpunks, and Blade Runner style decay. This view was reflected in the stadium production designed by architect Mark Fisher. It was an immense sculptured scaffold artwork with catwalks, chutes, and antennae suggesting a closed steel mill, a redundant oil refinery, or a useless launching pad. All the obsolete detritus of a once great but now rusting civilization. Whatever its meaning, steel wheels it would be. The tour stage was to reflect both the status of the Rolling Stones as well as contemporary life in the late 1980s. Mark Fisher had been invited by Patrick Woodruff, lighting director, to submit concepts for the Steel Wheels stage design. He became the stage architect and was thinking about the emergence of the post-industrial society, shifting from economies based on heavy industry and manufacturing to those based on information and services. The physical consequences of these changes had crept into filmmaking and writing with apocalyptic visions of urban decay and dystopian futures. These ideas, especially William Gibson's Sprawl trilogy and the cyberpunk sci-fi genre it generated, formed a cultural backdrop for Fisher's designs for the Stones' Steel Wheels tour. Starting from this contemporary vision of the future, Fisher began his design process by showing a large image of the NASA launch platform with the shuttle removed to the stones, suggesting such outdated or obsolete industrial forms litter the landscape of everyday life and act as monuments to dead technologies. 
The steel wheels set that emerged from these early discussions drew upon the powerful forms of steel mills, refineries, oil rigs, and power stations, the redundant technology of industries in decline. The stage was to invoke a sense of nostalgia for a bygone age, which was particularly relevant to the baby boomer generation who formed the Stones' original fan base and who had witnessed this industrial decline at first hand. The stage was transported in 80 trucks with a traveling crew of 200, supplemented with 150 local hires for each performance. Longer than a football field, Jagger called it a constructionist stage. Wyman thought it looked like a half-built factory. Wood saw a space shuttle. Richard said it was undescribable. Fisher called his friend and collaborator Mark Norton and arranged for him to submit his ideas on graphical materials directly to the Stones. Mark Norton knew the album and the tour would be called Steel Wheels. He said, But that's pretty much all we knew. Two words. That was the total brief. Norton vaguely recalls that he began his first sketches in the late spring of 1989. He worked for around three weeks on the initial concepts prior to presenting to Mick Jagger and then to Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood in London at Mark Fisher's office. Norton says Fisher had started some early sketches based on a conversation with Mick about trying to evoke a touring version of a dystopian derelict city. They'd also discussed contemporary science fiction literature at the time. Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and William Gibson's Mona Lisa Overdrive, both of which made me feel that the graphic look for steel wheels should be somewhat futuristic, without historical or backward-looking visual reference. I was working on graphical material quite separately to Mark until we brought both schemes together in the later stages of the project. I got inspired by the urban density of his designs, and he started incorporating my graphic motifs into the set. I then dressed his scaffolding plans with scrims made from the abstract compositions based on the steel graphical pattern. Norton developed a whole book of preliminary designs, trying out idea after idea. Only one of them stuck with Mick, though. The pages of notes have partially been lost, but none have ever been published, to Norton's knowledge. Norton says, I created the basic rondelle, but I also created all the repeat patterns and core components that became the album design, which was put together by John Warwicker. It turns out that when I'd presented to Mick, Keith, and Ronnie at Mark's office, there had been other presentations arranged by the record company. Mick liked what I'd been doing, but at a skinny 28 years old, he worried I wasn't going to be experienced enough to deal with the whole Stones World thing. Come to think of it, judging by my stutter and the loud sound my knees may have been making as I started the presentation, I may well have been good with the ideas, but just a bit shaky with the delivery. So he asked for John, who was considerably more experienced in the ways of record industry than me, to work with me to progress the project. My background had been live shows, so my take on the whole project was slightly different to his. I was concerned with trying to help build an experience, not necessarily a specific piece of album packaging. And my work as a brand designer ever since then 
has been concerned more with creating an experience for audiences and customers than any one specific artifact. John Warwicker described how he got involved with the project. I visited Mick at his home, and we talked and got on, and it started from there. Warwicker continued, Immediately after I received a phone call from their manager, Tony, a few days after I met Mick, the whole project took about four to six months because of the tour. John Warwicker explains how the wheel came about. As far as I remember, I was recommended to the band, possibly by art designer Mark Norton of 4i. I had previously tutored Mark when he was studying for his master's at the Central School of Art in London. I'm not sure how he became involved in the project, but he had a rough design, but no one knew how to turn this or modify this into a cover. They also needed someone to art direct the photography and basically broaden the visualization of the project across the marketing, etc., etc. Since leaving art school at the end of the 70s, early 80s, I found myself designing record sleeves and art directing music videos. I then found myself as head of design and head of video at A&M Records in London. This lasted for almost two years and gave me a broad knowledge into what was required for such a project. Mark was one of the first to experiment with computer-generated graphics. It was part of our conversations when he was a student. I had studied for a master's in electronic interactive media at the end of the 70s, so we were pretty well matched. He had a graphic of the wheel. I amended it and created the idea of continuous pattern, and art directed him to produce what is now the cover graphic. Let's hit the pause button and chat a bit. So it's funny to hear all the theories. You hear people guess as to what they think these steel wheels are. Yeah. I'm asking you right now, in this moment, what are the steel wheels? What are they? <laughs> I got I got nothing. All right. Point, I got point, nothing. Point proven. I think, um, you know, in my opinion, Jagger and Company's egos at the time, well, at that time or <laughs> now, would never have lent into the wheelchair reference. No, you know, I, no I, that, I, that, I didn't like that. That was the, the, the put-down artist. Yeah, that was yeah. a disparaging yeah. uh, reference. That was but the, Be the Beatle fans, yeah, pff, Clearly, yeah. Not not that many of them left at the time, so let's be honest. I do like the idea they were leaning into the rise of the digital age. You know, you highlighted that really well, which really took hold about a year later, I think, when the Internet truly became available to the general public. Obviously, we didn't all have it at the time, yeah, but yeah. that's when it really went public. And again, you know, the Stones were here first. You know, they made it here first. I always thought, in my opinion, this cover looks like a vinyl record morphing into a CD, which also captures that same energy of, you know, capitalizing on this new technology that had become, you know, who knew all these years later, still one of the primary formats. Yeah, I love that. I love that image. It does, uh, you know, when, when I first heard you say that, I, I took a look again. I thought, yeah. That's exactly what it looks like. It looks like a vinyl disc that's uh, trying to smooth out the grooves and 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 go digital. It's, it's absolutely. It's really odd, and you see that and, the motion of every other. And I, I did get wheel. to speak to the people who designed this, and not one of them mentioned that. I think maybe that's that was the subconscious uh, drive, driver for them unintentionally. But yeah. you know, we'll talk about a bit more about this later. But the CD itself, that format 
really informed how a lot of the art direction was done for this particular album. So in some different ways. So I, w- I won't hop into it now, but you said it though. Whatever Steel Wheels ultimately means doesn't matter because we're off and running. Yeah. It's it's a bit confusing, so set me straight. The album cover is being designed at essentially the same time as the set design for the tour, independently of each other? In Not independently okay. of each other. The people were talking to each other that, okay. that they were trying to coordinate this because the, you know, the, the stage was going to be monstrous, humongous, and it was going to have imagery on the stage, and it was going to be merchandise, and so all of this was going on together, and maybe that was kind of a... Uh, a, a digital age kind of thing. Yeah. Instead of just making an album cover, we're making a, a design. We're designing a, a a jacket. We're designing a stage. We're designing uh, banners. We're designing the whole, you know, the whole smear of things. Yeah, and, and it was uh, it was very different. You know, the way they worked was very different. They had different people kind of collaborating and and informing one another on what they're doing. So yeah, it was a, an interesting. Uh, it was an interesting time and an, and an interesting album cover in that respect because absolutely, um, yeah, you know, it, it looks like it could have uh, walked off the stage. Yeah, it does. You know, it yeah. does. And those wheels certainly could have fallen off on a number of those nights on tour. But <laughs> That's right. what I find interesting, and I'm you know thinking of this now on the fly, is that the Stones have always felt so indebted to that raw energy, that primal rock and roll. You know, it's it's very organic and it's very in the studio and it's jams and it's buddies hanging out. And I think that they're able to do both swimmingly well is kind of incredible to me. You know, they were essentially having a committee design who we're going to be for the next year or two. Yeah, but they were very much becoming the corporate Rolling Stones. Yeah. You know, that, that, I, you know, th- that started sometime before, but yeah, I think that was uh, uh, a, a big piece of what drew... Uh, Keith and Mick back together, you know, when they get together and talk about the, the money they were going to make. As a matter of fact, there are, there are quite a few quotes out there where they basically said that. We started thinking about the money we could make on this. And... Well, they, they certainly made plenty, but yeah. it speaks to how large they were. Obviously, it's something only the biggest band on the planet Earth is capable of. Usually, you'll have to wait for the album reception, the reviews, blah, 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 to figure out the true scope and size of your tour. They weren't they weren't following up their most uh, critically lauded albums. You know, this was a band that was too big, that two flops didn't really seem to matter, didn't really seem right. To, right. To, to dent their armor much. Right, and they survived their own uh, highs and lows, and so uh, they did indeed have steel wheels. There wasn't anything going to stop them. <laughs> no, no. But it brings us to the two Marks, right? We have Fisher and Norton, yep. who together tackled what turned out to be a sprawling and incredible set. That really leaned into that dystopian, you know, just the thematics of the time. I mean, you mentioned uh, Blade Runner, which is probably the most, you know, uh, resonant of those thematically. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it looked equal parts Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. I almost expect Tina Turner to be uh, opening for the Stones on this tour. But the urban nightmare of Robocop, the futuristic crumble of Running Man, which was in 2019. I don't, yeah. know, I don't know how yeah. raw off they were. Maybe not. Yeah, really. There's a great little YouTube out there uh, where there it's basically a play set. I don't know if it's in Mick's house or wherever, but you know, Mick's there and Mark's there and, and they're looking at this and Charlie's there and they're looking at this thing. And I'm thinking, God, you know, they're every, well, I shouldn't say every kid. I'll say this kid would have loved to have had something yeah. like that when I was a kid. It was a, a, a neat mock-up, but, but I mean, just the detail 
that goes into the planning of a, a Stones tour is just uh, beyond my ken. It's incredible, yeah. And I think it's wild to imagine that it all came from a two-word prompt. Steel wheels. Steel wheels. Back to our story. Asked if there were earlier designs for the album cover, Warwicker replied, As far as I remember, there are around 96 different iterations and a few other ideas, one of which was a Dada-esque type treatment to give them a real alternative. Charlie, who had been trained as a graphic designer, really liked the type version, as did the rest of the band. But Mick, quite rightly, understood that the computer-generated graphic was more direct and more applicable to all the merchandising requirements. Warwicker says he has never published any of the other versions, and he declined the offer to share those other ideas. I asked Warwicker if the Stones had already begun to work with Mark Fisher on the stage design before they came to him. Did Fisher's theme or design affect your album cover design? He replied, yes, Mark had worked with them before. The stage design was evolving when I started on the project, and Mark then integrated my designs within his design. By that time, the cover was fairly complete. At the same time, I met the people who were going to produce the merchandise. So everything started to work in parallel, and I developed a graphic language approach to embrace all of this. The influence of the Norton Warwicker wheel design was evident in the stage design. Norton says his design was something modern, tough, post-punk, which was my own art school point of reference anyway. Shattered. Not something of the past. I wasn't interested in making a retro reference like locomotive wheels either. It was more of a case of trying to evoke the abstract idea of forward motion, energy, something that was rushing past at speed. Not anything representative of an actual object. That would have been too obvious, the opposite of what I wanted. There were several versions of the rondelle. Along with Norton's sketches, Warwicker originally had his own concepts and also did versions using Norton's development drawings. Norton sums up the process saying, But in the end, the design process took on a methodical stage-by-stage -stage refinement process until it was complete. We were also creating sections, abstracts, cut-ups for a vast range of merchandise material, a process overseen by Lance Yates. Lance was a sharp commercial merchandiser who had been put in place by Mick to make sure the whole look came together as one brand. Norton's design was for the Steel Wheels phenomenon, not simply for the album cover. He said... The point of a really good, simple, but evocative, but punchy design, motif, logo, symbol, design system is that it needs to work well at all sizes. If it can't do that, it isn't much use to anyone creating a multimedia project like Steel Wheels. The front and back covers, although not identical, have the same motif, 12 black and gray rondelles that could be seen as 12 steel wheels in reference to the title. If you prefer more esoteric explanations, they could be 12 discs alluding to the arrival of the CD in the post-industrial era. Presented with some of the various explanations for the title and the art, Warwicker was asked what it represented to him. He replied, The rhythm of the visible and invisible built. To slightly misquote Winston Churchill, We built the world, 
Thereafter, it shapes us. This rhythm is not monotonal, but microtonal. The finished graphic, as far as I remember, is not blindly repetitive, but like a Steve Reich composition, has these microtonal differences and progressions. Interestingly, and to my surprise, Charlie was a Steve Reich fan. That, of course, is exactly what I thought when I asked the question. <laughs> Warwicker describes the cover. The original sleeve was presented with a metallic silver Pantone as the background cover, and the type was printed in Pantone metallic blue. But after the first run, for cost reasons, it was all changed to four color. The CD has a post-industrial polished steel look of machinery to it. Printed across the top in blue on a black background are the name of the band and the title of the album. Inside the front cover of the clear plastic jewel case is a booklet consisting of eight two-sided pages. Thus, the front of the booklet is the actual album cover. This is the first time there was not really an album cover, so much as a booklet for a Stones album. Let's hit the pause button and chat a bit. While working at A&M Records, Warwicker found a new energetic Mexican photographer, Enrique Badalescu. He suggested him for the group portrait for the album insert. Warwicker said, At the time the Stones had finished the album, so they had gone back to their normal lives, separate from each other. And I think they were rather jaded by having their photograph taken as a group. And their time to do so was very limited. So under my art direction, we shot each member of the band separately. Bill was in Saint-Tropez and montaged them together in a computer. Badalescu was a young photographer just starting out when he moved to London early in 1988. About four to five months after he arrived in London, Badalescu ended up competing against Nick Knight for the Steel Wheels job. Knight is a man he regarded as a legend whom he admired very much. His agent told him not to get his hopes up. Soon after, he was told he got the job. Badalescu said, They chose me because my style was very active, action, like dancing. I was basically dancing. The pictures looked like portraits, but you did not know they were dancing to really loud music. I think they wanted to look really more like they had a lot of energy. They did not want it to look like old portraits of old bands that reunited. They chose me, and so we started one at a time. I was very young, very green, very nervous, of course, and shitting in my pants, I could call it. The first one was Mick Jagger. Really? Ah, why could you not have started with someone else? Mick Jagger arrived. He was super cool. He arrived on the dot. He looked at a couple of outfits. I asked him what music he wanted to listen to. I put, at the time, Soul to Soul was very, very, very well in the heart of the moment. At that time, it was all dance music in London, and he danced like crazy for like one and a half hours at the most in three or two outfits. The photo shoot lasted for two and a two and a half hours in a London studio where Badalescu experimented with a really edgy new process that made the colors pop. After Mick Jagger, Badalescu found his confidence and everything went very well. Next was Charlie Watts. Charlie Watts came. He was like a gentleman. 
He's a jazz player. Melanie Ward knew what kind of style he had. He actually came with his outfits. They were really beautiful outfits, very goldsmith kind of thing. Very elegant, striped, very elegant with a tie. No, he was not dancing. Just portraits of him, really calm, cool, sitting, standing. No dancing. His pictures were more like pictures of a jazz player, you know, not a pop star. He was very cool, very calm, very down to earth. Bill Wyman was next. On June 2nd, 1989, he would marry Mandy Smith in the French Riviera, so Badalescu headed off to Saint-Tropez. He recalled this trip saying, He and Ronnie Wood were in the French Riviera, so we went to their hotel. We set up a background in their hotel and we shot. We hung out with them. They were more like playboys kicking up there, burning themselves or tanning themselves. They were very chatty and seemed to be very happy to be in the French Riviera with a lot of girls. And then we start shooting. We did one first. I think it was first Bill Wyman. Bill Wyman was kind of quiet, more calm. Quiet, introverted, I think. And Ronnie Wood was more similar to Keith Richards, kind of. Or like Mick Jagger. He was very funny, actually. We did the photo shoot. They gave us one and a half to two hours. They were very easygoing, too. He continued, We flew back to London, and the last one was Keith Richards, which was, for me, amazing for me, with Keith Richards, because he actually brought his own music, which he was working on for himself. He brought some tapes. They were still using tapes at the time. He brought his music. His manager was very cool. He arrived quite late, but he got lost. Badalescu had to go pick Richards up at another studio. He was very chatty. He got really into it. He really wanted to keep on going. He was very funny. He was the one that really chatted more and enjoyed it. It was great shooting him. Badalescu's deal with the Stones included a buyout clause that meant the Stones owned all the photos taken. That's why you've not seen more photos from those sessions. John Warwicker took the photos and put it all together. The tour book and the album insert photos are all Badalescu's work. Photos of Richards, Watts, Wood, Jagger, and Wyman alternate with the track list and song lyrics with a final photograph that unites the band in the montage Warwicker mentioned. About 20 years in, solo projects and band turmoil had posed a threat to the continuity of the band through much of the 1980s. Steel Wheels was well-named. It marked the Stones' Potsdam Conference, where the leaders of the band negotiated the terms of survival for the second half of their careers. Steel Wheels are what propel this band forward. No matter the slings and arrows, this band would remain together and on the move. The ripsaw continuity of the album cover ironically spoke a truth about the band that few could have predicted at the time. Let's hit the pause button and chat one more time. So let's talk about that booklet. Let's open it up a little bit. It's cool that even this late into the career, the Stones were still giving newcomers a chance. I yeah. thought that was really cool. Yeah. The, yeah. the fresh faced but wildly talented 28-year-old Enrique Badalescu. That's it. I just wanted to say the name. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. But uh, So he essentially you know, won the photo gig for the insert. You know, kind of swept in and uh, and 
took it. Uh, you know, he wasn't predicting that he'd win the job, but sounds pretty uh, pretty cool. So the resulting sessions with each member were done one by one, save for the duo of Wood and Wyman. These sound hilariously specific, <laughs> almost to the point of cliche. <laughs> you know, each member, you could take the name out of each anecdote <laughs> and it'd be immediately easy to, to tell you which member we're talking about. Yeah, I don't think there was any mystery there. So funny. Yeah, yeah their, their personalities are just uh, so well-formed and so exaggerated. Yeah. yeah, those were already so calcified, you're yeah. right. So I think, I just love the idea of Mick Jagger dancing the soul to soul, which mm-hmm. they were heat-seeking at the time. They were certainly, uh, you know, putting some singles out that were mm-hmm. catching fire overseas. But man, that's the most dated, <laughs> the most dated, uh, as the kids these days would say, cringe. Uh, yeah. But um, so that's kind of, that's kind of funny. And the idea of Keith Richards getting lost is the most yeah. Keith Richards thing I've ever heard. Yeah. My favorite side detail. What do you remember about, uh, or you know, what have you read about some of these that really sticks out to you? Well, the, the thing that really sticks out to me is just the, the size of this because they sent this poor guy all over the world, yeah, yeah. you know, to get pictures of people. You know, what happened to the days when you pull the band together in the studio and they sit down and you know, they they dress up and and you take their pictures? But you know, the Stones were they're not just any band. It's okay, no. we're done. You want my picture? You find me. And, We're jet setting across have, the yeah, road. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was kind of a, a unusual, even for the Stones, that you know they they set this poor guy out, and then of course you have to get the pictures, and then you have to put them all together yeah. to make it look like. They were they're hanging, hanging, hanging out together. Yeah. yeah, but hey, if you're truly embracing the digital yeah. age, that's probably the more appropriate way to do and it. And that's a great point because I think that's exactly what was happening in this in this whole package. Yeah. Uh, that they were working on, including the band, including the videos and everything else. Yeah. I think it was just, you know, let, let's play with this digital thing. It's we're good. learning how to be yeah. a new band, yeah. a new organism. Yeah. It's interesting to hear, you know, this is this is a really big get for this kid. And he says, the first thing he hears is Mick Jagger's first. I mean, that's yeah. a job, man. That's, <laughs> that's quite a job. But yeah. here's my question. You know, I made quick reference to this, but Ron, Ron Wood and Bill Wyman are hanging. Were they were they buddy buddy more so than other people? I mean, Bill Wyman was on his way out, yeah, whether and, he knew and, it or not. And I don't think so. I, I think uh, I always thought of Woody as kind of the peacemaker. Mm-hmm. That you know, he was the clown. He you was know, bridge. He, 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 yeah, yeah, he he could bridge the gap. Uh, you know, and so um, uh, and, and Bill was sort of a loner, and like you said, he was on his way out. So I think that's you know, um, Woody's friends with everybody. Yeah, I guess and so. He, he was friends with Bill. You know, he'd be he'd be Bill's pal if no one else would. I got nothing going on. I'll yeah. go to the Riviera with you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I, you know, as I'm wont to do, I like to think about songs. Okay. I made a hot take earlier, so here <laughs> comes another one. This for me is a top ten Rolling Stones album. Yeah, I, I well, I have no problem with that. Yeah. In the top ten, I can tell you, I remember waiting. Uh, you know, to see if the Stones would ever have another album. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there was always that um, was always in the background, yeah. and and so you know, it had been about three years, I think, since um, Dirty Cover. Oh, we got that wrong. I got that wrong. Yeah, Dirty, Dirty Work. It was Dirty <laughs> yeah, Work. Eighty yeah. six. Yeah, and and uh, you know, when it came out, I was it was like Christmas to me. It was sort of like okay, so mom and dad aren't getting divorced. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and so you know, that was that was kind of neat. 
And, but I, I, have, I don't know if it was the absence of the Stones or the fact that the couple of albums before this were really kind of stinkers yes. musically. Uh, but yeah, I thought this had some really good keepers. Yeah, and this, you know, they, they've talked about this before. Tattoo You was a quote-unquote comeback of sorts. Not in the truest sense. It was cobbled together. Right. But this was very intentional. And I think as an album, it's just incredible. And it's, you know, for those of us that aren't quite fanboys to, to your level, <laughs> this does get lost in the grander picture of their discography. This is an undiscussed oh, sure. album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this was, uh, yeah. You know, the the, the original fans were mm-hmm. probably, you know, in, in the... In the eighties, and and you know, they were involved with careers or this or that. And maybe they're not. Their flame isn't burning as bright. Mm-hmm. Uh, their kids haven't been exposed enough to it for the new generation. So yeah, I think whatever the the dynamic was, that this turned out to be pretty much a, a an overlooked album, an overlooked classic in a yeah. lot of ways. And you're right. And I think it's a difficult it's a difficult age for a band to be. You know, you've been together yeah. that long. You're mid to late forties. You yeah. have your lives. Yeah. You're uh, being photographed separately. You know, you've had your, uh, you've had your cut ups with each other. But again, I think it's a shame. This has a few of their absolute best rockers. Great mixed emotions. That's a great lead single. Rock in a hard place. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. Continental drift is one of my favorite. Yeah. I loved it when they start songs. Start use that to start their, their tours. Almost hear you sigh. Um, oh, incredible! Fantastic song, and it was slipping away. Uh, that was one of Keith's That's better. A, yeah, that is a Keith one, and and not a medley of a few songs tacked on at the end. You know, yeah, full Keith. <laughs> That's know. right. I don't know if he got more than three or less then, but uh, either way, I'm happy to talk about this album anytime. But uh, there you go. That's Steel Wheels, right? That's it. Yeah. Let's and keep rolling. We'll, uh, see you next time. See ya.